This morning we're going to look at Psalm 19, continuing to talk about God's vision for His church. What is the church meant to be about? What's the goal of this gathering of people? What are we to be about, and how do we know if what we're about is, is getting it right? How do we measure what God has given us in, in this ministry? As we think about these things, I, I thought maybe this morning we might use uh, our God-given imaginations for a little bit, for something uh, good, hopefully. And I want to use our imaginations this morning to consider what it would look like for us to be a truly successful church. What does that look like? So let's suppose for a moment that uh, we were given some kind of special insight into the wants and needs of our community in such a way that we were able then to develop programs and activities that really appealed to those who were living around us. We became known then as the church to go to. And our worship space here on Sunday mornings was filled week by week to capacity to the point where we started talking about, man, we're going to have to maybe add another service to meet the need. We had more than enough cash flow in our, our offering plate, and we really never had any money issues as a result of that. We became the talk of the town and not in the negative way that we have sometimes been. Does this sound like the goal of our gathering? Would this make us a successful church? For some, this sounds like a dream come true. But perhaps it's because we've been dreaming the wrong dream. Our eyes maybe are on the wrong goal. What is the purpose of the church? What is our goal? Biblically, biblically speaking, we've been given instructions Will we take them seriously? If our goal is to make churchgoers and to influence people to fill our offering baskets, then we will approach everything that we do in a very different way than if we come to the biblical goal of making disciples. Making disciples is hard work. Jesus never said it would be easy. Jesus himself experienced the difficulty of disciple-making in John chapter 6. I encourage you to go read Jesus' experience. When he got real about disciple-making, some very difficult things began to happen. Making disciples takes tons of time and lots of intentionality. It's rarely, if ever, the, the most popular way to grow a church. It's not even popular with a lot of church folks. But Christ has taught, called us to do so much more than just gather people in a building once or twice a week to sing songs they like, to hear uh, uh, some kind of a life-relevant sermon, and then to send them on their way a little happier than when they came in. And by the way, Christ has saved us for more than that as well. There is without a doubt a biblical expectation for growth in the Christian life. God has given us a number of gifts for the purpose of that growth to help us in our growing in the Lord. And I want us to explore in Psalm 19 three of them this morning, three gifts that God has given us to help us to grow in our relationship with Christ. 
Let's look at Psalm 19 together. We're going to talk today about God's gifts for growing. C.S. Lewis said of this psalm, he said, I take this psalm to be the greatest poem in the psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. There are powerful, powerful words here in Psalm 19. I said about several years ago to commit this psalm to memory, and I could probably share most of it by memory now, but I'm not going to butcher it by doing that this morning. But these are spectacular words that speak of an amazing God who has an amazing plan for his people that goes far beyond the Sunday morning worship gathering. And I hope that we can see that together this morning. Three gifts this morning for our growing. First of all, God has given us the gift of general revelation. And as we look at these first six verses in Psalm 19, we begin to see God is laying out a picture here of what creation says about our Creator. As we go out into uh, the, the natural world and we see the glory of God's creation, we see places like the Grand Canyon and, and Niagara Falls, we, we witness those things, but then we also just look in our own backyard. I was looking out this week from my own uh, front window and just seeing the beauty of the field across the way and just seeing the imprint of the Creator in the creation. This is by God's design that the creation, as it says here, declares the glory of God. It is continually crying out about His majesty. We as His people are called to echo that creation call. We see in verses 1 through 3 that, that the nighttime sky, it brazenly declares His majesty. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's as if David on a starry night was looking out and he was considering and he was looking at the glories of the heavens and he didn't know all that we know about the billions upon billions of stars and, and the trillions upon trillions of light years that it takes to reach those places. He didn't know about the vastness of the expanse. All he knew was this. It is beautiful and it is glorious and it did not happen by accident. This could have not just come to be. It had to come about by a creator. The creation cries out about the creator with regularity. Augustus Tollock said it this way, he said, Though all the preachers on earth should grow silent, though every human mouth should cease from publishing the glory of God, the heavens above will never cease to declare and proclaim His majesty and His glory. We look at His creation from the grandness of the universe down to the intricacies of the way that our cells and our body work, and we see the imprint of the Creator. Not only does the sky brazenly declare His majesty, but then He speaks in verses 4-6 through six of one in particular thing in the, in the sky, the sun. And the sun which boldly delivers His message. There's this picture that He's painting here of the sun being sent out like a messenger to declare the glory of God, to show us the grandness of His design. The, the story is told of of a particular man who was of an atheistic persuasion and he approached a Jewish rabbi one day in a very confrontational manner and he said, Sir, show me your God and I will believe. And the rabbi said, Sir, I cannot show you my God, but I can show you one of his messengers. He said, Come with me. And they went 
outside on that clear day. And he said, there he is, pointing up to the noonday sun. Look upon him, see his messenger. And the man said, I cannot look upon him. It's too painful to look upon the sun in that way. And the rabbi wisely said, if you cannot look upon his messenger, how do you hope to look upon his majesty? And we live in a culture that proclaims that all of this just came to be. It all just happened. A big bang, millions of years of evolution, and here we are. And yet deep within our souls, don't we share the same cry of David as he looked out at the night skies, he considered the sun making its course across the heavens? Don't we have the same understanding as he? When we look, we realize there has to be one who is the Creator. We recognize in His creation His majesty, His holiness. We understand some things particularly about His character. Romans 1.20 says His invisible attributes, His invisible qualities, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, these things have been clearly perceived. It's not a mystery. These things have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so we are without excuse so the psalmist can say it's the fool who says in his heart there is no god god has given us more than enough evidence and yet he knows in his wisdom we need something more than general revelation we need something more than his creation to know him well because we have a sin problem And our sin problem has caused us to put on blinders that we will not see that which is right before us. And so God has gone an extra step. He's given us another gift. He's done more than just to cause us to look to creation. He has given us not just general revelation, but also the gift of special revelation. And that's really the heart of this psalm. The the gift of general revelation just sets us up to realize that we need something more. And that's why God has given us His Word, this special revelation that speaks of Him. Charles Spurgeon, speaking about this psalm, he said, He is the wisest who sees both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them. My Father wrote them both. The Creator of the heavens and the earth has spoken and He has given us His Word in the pages of Scripture that we might know Him beyond what creation can allow us to know Him. There's a deeper revelation. We know things about God because of His Word that we cannot understand about God just by simply looking at His world. God has given us this gift. But do we take full advantage of what God has given the gift of special revelation, God's word given to us. And you watch, I noticed something this week that I'd never noticed. As much as I've studied this psalm in the past, I had never noticed in verses 7 through 11, there is a progression of things that the word brings about in our lives. 
There's a progression of things that we see in these next several verses that, that shows what God wants to do as He implants the Word in us and the Word begins to grow and bear fruit in us. There's a progression of things that take place and I want you to see it this morning. I want you to see what growing looks like because God has not left us to wonder if we're getting it right or not. He has shown us the pattern. And I would ask you this morning, are you seeing this pattern demonstrated in your own life? Let this be a measuring stick for each of us as we consider these things. The first thing that special revelation does there in verse 7 is it revives us from death to life. Romans 10 says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. The way that you came to faith was not one day you woke up and said, hey, guess what? I think I'm going to trust Jesus now. No, the word of God was revealed to you. The blinders were removed from your eyes. And you began to see and understand this living word. And you maybe didn't see and understand all of it. We still don't. But you recognize this. God has spoken and there are things that are required of me because God has spoken. There's a response that's required by the word. But we can't make that response until God revives us by the power of his word and the power of his spirit. This word reviving there in verse 7 speaks of a newness of life. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. It's not optional. There must be a, a being born again in our lives or we will never appreciate this word or his world. We are born into this world with a sinful nature that rejects the knowledge of God. And it's only when God, by His grace, opens our blind eyes and deaf ears and takes our stone-cold hearts and causes them to now beat again as hearts of flesh that now beat for Him. It's only when God does that life-transforming work, when He revives us, that we begin to take this journey. But here's what I fear. I fear for many of us, our journey with the Lord ends at verse 7. We thought that the reviving of the Lord was all there was. That was the finish line. When that was really just the beginning point. Imagine what it would be like if a family bring, brought forth their firstborn, firstborn into the world they're there in that glorious moment in the hospital, which is not nearly as glorious as the sitcoms would make it to be. And they have this newborn baby. And then, and I know these days, it's like the next day they kick you out of there. I mean, remember that moment, like they're really going to send us home with this kid? We don't know what we're doing. But imagine after having gone through the nine months of labor and you, and you go then there to the hospital and the child is born and new life is given then to this family. Imagine if when the nurse came in and said, hey, we're going to send you home today. If the mother and father said, great, we're glad. And there was no thought in their mind of, oh, we actually have to take this kid home. And then the nurse came along and said, hey, you need to take this baby with you. Oh, well, okay, what do we do with that? So we bring the kid home and we toss him or her in the crib. And every once in a while we think, well, we probably ought to feed him. I'll well, change his diaper. But there's no real mentality toward this reality that that child that's been given into the family has been given for the purpose of nurture and growth. 
And church, I fear that that's exactly what we have done time and time again with those that God has added to our number. I can remember my own experience coming to know the Lord and being born again as a young man. And I can remember a period of seven years between that profession of faith and when this growth in my life actually began. When somebody actually came alongside of me and showed me how to feed upon the Word of God. How to bow my knee in prayer. How to share my faith with others. Seven long years when there was no nourishing, there was no growth in the Lord, and I didn't even realize that that was something expected. And I want to say to us today, it is absolutely expected. The Word of God and the reviving that it brings in our souls is by no means a finish line. It is by every means a starting point. Then what does the word do? Look at the next part of verse 7. Then the word begins to ready us for the decisions and trials of our lives. It makes wise the simple. Isn't that what it says there? That the word of God makes wise the simple. Now, the word simple there is not a downplay. It's not saying that, that we're dumb or ignorant, but it's a word that refers to a childlikeness. It's bringing wisdom into the life of a child of God, helping us to learn to make decisions in different ways, to be able to endure trials in different ways. How is it that our sister Nancy Allen can walk through terminal cancer with joy? Because our sister knows the God of the Word. And she even said to me this week, I don't understand how people can do this not knowing the Lord. But you see, Nancy had much more than just a profession of faith long ago and no fruit since. Her life has been radically changed. And therefore, she can walk through the trials of this life with joy because she knows Him. And you know Him through His Word. I know this is Sunday School 101, but we need to come back to it, folks. And then what happens? The word revives us, it begins to ready us, to give us wisdom for the decisions and the trials of this life. And then the word begins to produce in us a joy. Look at verse 8. It begins to take us from jaded to joyful. We are a jaded people, are we not, apart from Jesus? There we are without God and without hope in this world apart from Jesus. And we face so many trials and so many tribulations and so much junk comes into our lives on a regular basis that we can easily live jaded. And many of us, we are kind of bent toward a pessimism. We expect the worst all the time, and we're pleasantly surprised when the worst doesn't come. The worst that we expected. That's the way I often find myself living my, my own life. And yet, we see here that the Bible is rejoicing. It brings rejoicing to the heart. It's as we face these trials and as we walk through difficult decisions by the word of god as we do the hard thing that's how god begins to produce that real and lasting joy and it's so much greater than the circumstantial happiness that this culture is trying to continually sell to us the joy comes from a revived soul who's made wise by the word and then there's rejoicing. And then from the rejoicing we see in verses 9 and 10, there's a refining. There's a refining that takes place. There's a picture here of gold. And he says, not just gold, not just any old gold, but much fine gold. And how is much fine gold created? It must be taken through a refining process. 
melted down, impurities removed, the dross taken away, and then what is left is that fine gold that is worth so much. And yet he says that gold is worth nothing in comparison with the Word of God. All the gold in Fort Knox, be it all the gold in the world, is worth nothing compared to this that God has spoken. His word is like gold, the finest of gold. It's like honey, the sweetest of honey. And he refines us, taking us from darkness to light. Warning us when we go astray. That's the grace of God, by the way. Children in this room, when your parents give you a good and godly warning, that's the grace of God in your life. And adults in this room, when God gives us a good and godly warning, when His Word says, hey, you ought to stay away from that because it's going to bring destruction into your life. You ought not avoid that because it's going to bring good things in your life. There's warnings here the Bible gives us, and those are God's grace. We oftentimes think that God is some big meanie that just wants to keep us from things that we find that are fun. But he wants us to experience ultimate and lasting joy. And he knows the things that will keep us from that. And so he calls us away from them out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. And finally, and we love this part, in verse 11 we see that the word also bears with it a reward. A reward now, but also a reward forever. Notice what he says there in verse 11. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them, in keeping the word of God, there is great reward. So what does it mean to keep the word of God? It means, yes, that we read the word. It means, yes, that we study the word. It means, yes, that we memorize the word, and that we spend time in the word on a regular basis. But even beyond that, it means we practice what we read. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, you won't know his commandments if you're not in the word. But it's not enough just to know His commandments. It's also the walking in His commandments. It's the keeping His commandments. And that's where us growing in the Word together becomes absolutely necessary. That's why I commend you not just to come and sit in this gathering on Sunday morning. God wants more for you. That's why I commend you to get into a Sunday school class, to find a a small group of folks that you can get together with and you can pour over God's word together and you can learn together and you can grow together and you will find this. Yes, you will gain so much from getting into God's word on your own, but that growth will be radically multiplied when you do it with others. This is by God's design. This is by God's design that we would come together around God's word and we would see God is spoken and it is lovely and it is beautiful and sometimes it stings. Sometimes he says things to us that we don't want to hear. Sometimes he calls us to things that are just downright difficult. And yet as we walk through these things together, we can encourage one another and build one another up in love and all the more as we look and long for his return. And so the word says of itself in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That Here's the purpose. That the man of God, that the people of God, the sons and daughters of God might be competent and equipped for every good work. You will not be equipped for the Christian life apart from the word of God. 
And you will be lethargic at best if your only exposure to the Word of God is in this gathering on Sunday morning. Daily open the Word of God and read. And when you find something you don't understand, ask Him for wisdom. And when you're struggling through the trials of life, watch Him as He implants joy in you. And continue to walk through these things and you will begin to see God refining you, changing you, transforming you by the renewing of your mind little by little. You won't even, the change will be so imperceptible you won't notice it, but others will. You won't be as angry as you once were. There will be a boldness that wasn't there before. You'll grow in humility. Your heart will begin to break for the things that God's heart breaks for. And you'll begin to not be so caught up in the things that God's not all that concerned about. Eternal priorities will begin to take root. And you'll begin to understand things from God's perspective in a way you never thought possible. You see, you may say, Pastor, that sounds like an awfully high and lofty goal. I would tell you I'm not even getting started with what the Word of God will do in your life if you'll let the Word and the Spirit come in and begin to bring transformation. It's not easy, but it is awfully simple. God has never meant to confuse us. One last gift this morning, and I'm going to fly through this. We have the gift of general revelation, the gift of special revelation, and we have this third gift, this gift of intentional repentance. I know we've talked a lot about repentance this morning, and we have to because the Word calls us to it. Repentance to us oftentimes sounds like an ugly word. It is one of the most beautiful words that God has ever given because repentance means that He calls me away from the sin that's leading me to destruction and calls me into a relationship with Him. And it's not a one and done. I want to say this to us this morning. We have got to flee from this mentality that a repentance is a one and done. I repented back there somewhere and that was enough to do me all my life. No, repentance is the regular practice of the Christian life. David shows us right here in Psalm 19, in these final verses, he shows us what repentance looks like. We we see, first of all, repentance from both anonymous sins and from arrogant sins. He said, Lord, keep me from hidden faults. Keep me from the sin that I don't even recognize. Don't we all find ourselves at times with attitudes that we didn't even recognize were hurting others or that were hindering our relationship with God? Don't we find ourselves engaging in things that we didn't even realize were an issue at the time until God shows us? I can remember when my life was so radically consumed with anger and sarcasm, I didn't even recognize it in my own life until one day God used a brother in Christ to say, hey brother, why do you do that? Why do you feel like it's necessary to put others down in order to elevate yourself? And man, I was wounded in that moment, but he was so right. And that set me on a journey of several years of beginning to hide God's word in my heart about that issue. 
that I would not let the sun go down on my anger, as the, as the Scriptures say, or that I would be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger, as the Scriptures encourage us, that I would understand that anger doesn't produce the righteous like God's, God desires, that all came out of the Word of God. And as I began to hide God's Word in my heart, guess what happened? Psalm one nineteen eleven: you hide your God's Word in His heart so that you may not sin against Him. That doesn't mean I never get angry. It just means anger doesn't have the stronghold in my life that it once did. I've been transformed because God's word and God's spirit began to do a work in this sinner's heart. And I yearn for you to have that if you've not experienced it. And by the way, that was all post becoming a Christian. We still have struggles. By God's grace, he enables us to walk through them all. And there's arrogant sins, presumptuous sins. We know we're doing wrong and we don't care. And we boldly launch off into directions that God has warned us about. We continue in that and we go hard after those places of destruction until God, by his grace, puts a wall in our path. And says, you shall not pass, you shall not go any farther in this because I love you. And sometimes that wall is a diagnosis. Sometimes it's a death. Sometimes it's overwhelming death, the loss of a job. God will do whatever it takes to get our attention when we are in the midst of presumptuous sin. Lastly, this morning, he calls us to repentance from sinful actions and from sinful attitudes. Psalm ends with one of the most beautiful prayers. I urge you to commit this last verse, Psalm nineteen fourteen, to memory, and let this be the springboard for your prayers with continual, with continual fervency. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer. That's a powerful statement. Lord, take hold of that which everybody else sees. The words of my mouth, the actions that I participate in, what everybody else sees, Lord, take hold of that as my rock and my redeemer. And Lord, all the things that nobody else sees, the secret thoughts, what's going on internally, and that's really where most of the battle is for us, that those internal things, the the meditations of our heart, Lord, take hold of that as well. Grab hold of it. Be sovereign over it. Help me to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. But I want to tell you, that war cannot be won apart from the Word of God. I would have never had victory over my anger issues in any way had it not been for the Word of God. And I want to tell you this morning, whatever besetting sin is grabbing hold of your life, you will not find freedom until God, by His Spirit and by His Word, comes in and sets the captive free. I want to urge you this morning, that begins by taking God's word seriously. It begins by us following him in repentance. And Romans 2 says, do we presume then on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? God is all those things. He is kind. He is forbearing and patient. But know this. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. 
the fact that God allows us to continue in our sin and does not strike us dead on the spot is a grace immeasurable. But an even greater grace is this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still shaking our fists in the face of a holy God and continuing in our stubborn and obstinate ways, Christ took the cross for us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Will you dive into His truth this week? By God's grace, will you walk the pathway of repentance? And by God's grace, see faith spring up that wasn't there before. Father, help us. Help us to see what we can't see apart from your grace. Help us to see you in your creation. Help us to see you in your word. Help us to see your kindness in leading us to repentance. We can be a hateful people, but you are a holy God. We choose again and again to walk in ways that bring you no glory. And yet you come and demonstrate your glory to us anyway. Lord, bring us to repentance and faith this morning. You are our rock and our redeemer. You're worthy of our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name.